This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History Nerds United. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I love art. Growing up, I was surrounded by it. I come from Rochester, Minnesota, home of the world-famous Mayo Clinic, which totally dominates the middle of the city. If you've never been there, imagine dozens of buildings linked with skyways and subways, connecting the hospital to shops, restaurants, and hotels, and just casually filled to the brim with priceless art. A set of spectacular Chihuly chandeliers hangs over the entrance to the Gonda building. Original Warhols line the hallway leading to my favorite coffee shop. And there's a six-foot-tall Rodin sculpture just casually standing next to the food court. The Mayo brothers believed that beautiful art and music helped the healing process. So the hospital has become a world-class art museum to honor that philosophy. And my family felt the same way about art. My grandma loved the Impressionists, but my mom was all about the Renaissance. All through the 90s, our apartment was full of Renaissance art prints, and they're popular for a reason. Even now, Renaissance art is held up as the gold standard, and all the changing styles in the following centuries are measured against it. When you think of beauty and art, do you think of Titian, Donatello, Michelangelo, da Vinci? Women in Renaissance Italy were surrounded by all that art too, but its impact was a little bit closer to home. What do you think it was like for them? seeing beauty standards change as these artists released piece after piece depicting the ideal woman? We hear a lot about Instagram promoting impossible standards, but how about Botticelli? How many women saw the birth of Venus in the 1480s and just despaired? She's got a perfect body and a giant seashell to surf in with the help of the wind god Zephyrus and a nymph throwing flowers. <laughs> Talk about impossible beauty standards. But these paintings reflect the beauty standards of the day, and women did try to recreate the looks at home. They dyed their hair blonde, they made their own cosmetics, they removed all their body hair, and some of them even had plastic surgery. Yeah, plastic surgery in Renaissance Italy. The more you look into it, the more you see how similar Renaissance beauty practices were to what we're seeing today. Driven by media and visual culture, trends change rapidly, with everyone and their cousin trying to keep up. And it was the same in the Renaissance. I'm talking about all that and more today with Professor Jill Burke, author of How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity. This is a great interview and we cover a lot of ground. Makeup in the Renaissance could be entertainment, employment, a way to get ahead, or even used as a weapon. We're talking female empowerment, beauty standards, toxic makeup, and even murder. I really enjoyed this interview. 
and I hope that you do as well. So here's my talk with Professor Jill Burke. All right, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Jill Burke, author of the brand new book, How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity. Jill, welcome to the show. Hello, it's great to be here. <laughs> we are so glad to have you. Oh my God. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy this book. It is one of the oh, funnest history books I've read in a very long time. It has so much amazing information. And the best part to me, of course, the recipes. I never yeah. would have dreamed that I could recreate Katerina Svorza's skincare routine. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. How did you research this? It's incredible. Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting about starting research for this book was the massive amount of information there is about women's cosmetics, women's skincare, hair care, all this kind of thing that hasn't really been looked at until very recently. Mm -hmm. So there's um, hundreds of recipe books that are both um, printed and in manuscript form from this period, including one by Katerina Sforza, who herself was quite a, an amazing character, um, the um, Countess of Imola um, in the early 16th century. And um, one of the most difficult things was actually to kind of navigate my way through these books it was more difficult knowing what to include and what not to include um so we um we tried some of the recipes I've looked through these recipe books tried to look at ones that looked doable that didn't contain ingredients that were poisonous yeah. or that were <laughs> unpleasant um and tried some of the recipes and they were they were great you know some of them are just lovely um so I'm really hoping that it'll encourage people just to try and um, play around at home in their kitchens with making things like lip balm or you know flower oils um that was really common all renaissance women used to make these you know most renaissance women would make these things in their kitchen so it's quite nice that I can encourage people to do that today oh for sure and there are so many of them that I want to try too the one that you mentioned it's um the the water with the lavender and the rose and the sage I just thought that smelled so good I, I've got to try to make that <laughs> yeah it's lovely and it's and it's easy it's yeah. really easy a lot of them are just really easy um and have ingredients that you'd find you know in your garden or in your just just easily from a from from a supermarket so yeah I mean I'd I'd really recommend I really recommend just trying things out and tweaking things and you know having a nice afternoon playing around with this kind of thing at home yeah yeah definitely and, and I do hope that people will give it a try this book is so much fun and apart from the recipes of course it has uh so much incredible historical information so the first thing that struck me about the book is how similar renaissance women's concerns were to what we're dealing with today so what i'm going to do is, is, is just talk a bit about how i came to this subject so i wrote a book about called uh the italian renaissance nude which is about the birth of the um nude form in art you know you know work by people like Botticelli or Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci and as part of that research I was looking at um life models you know um men and women who would strip naked to be drawn by these artists um and I was looking at female life models and none of them had any body hair mm -hmm. so I was like oh that's interesting is this just a drawing did they just not draw the body hair and then I start, started thinking about well did renaissance women move remove their body hair and it turns out that they did. There's lots and lots of examples of body hair removal ointments and, and techniques. And this led me to think about what kind of pressures this new type of visual culture had on women and how this kind of new, um, new proliferation 
of paintings and prints and drawings of women's bodies had on the idea on, on the idea that women had of themselves so you know did women look in the in the mirror which was also newly invented in the 16th century you know the the full-length mirror and look at themselves critically and it does look like that's true mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right that those concerns about am I too fat am I too thin am I in proportion is my skin looking right does my hair look right is it have I got split ends am I going gray am I too wrinkly all these things were the same people were asking these questions in the renaissance just like they are today Mm -hmm. wow that's absolutely incredible and of course you you mentioned how the full-length mirror was invented at this time how Mm -hmm. how do you think that changed things well you know, all these things, it's difficult to say. No one actually says, oh, now I'm looking in a full-length mirror and this makes me feel this. You know, unfortunately, historical sources don't work that way. But I think we can imagine that if you're seeing your entire body from as if from the outside, as if someone else is looking at you for the very first time, it's going to have a massive impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people start to, I mean, this is something that people say about this period anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, say, Shakespeare plays or, or some of the um, self-portraits of the time, including by these amazing women artists, people start to look at themselves as if from the outside more and judge their bodies in a way, you know, judge themselves against really tight beauty criteria mm-hmm. in a way that was is, is, is now really possible because of things like the full-length mirror. Yeah, wow. So Mm. what was life like for women of different classes and how would they use beauty to their advantage in different ways? Yeah, it used to be thought, and and certainly if you look at kind of, if you Google Renaissance cosmetics, it used to be thought, thought before I did this research that cosmetics was only for um, upper class women, only for, you know, duchesses and, um, queens and princesses and all these women who had time and money to look after themselves but that doesn't seem to be the case at all and in fact there's um, a lot of evidence that um, women from all social classes use different kinds of makeup and um, you know cosmetic products and things like moisturizer and so on and the very earliest printed books are aimed at these women are aimed at poorer women um, so they have recipes for things like, um, oh, you know, um, skin, um, skin cleansing cream, skin whitener, um, hair dye, um, moisturizer, all these kinds of things that you might see in a in a pharmacy today still. Um, and they had recipes. And, and so the first books would have been cost pennies. Um, these women might not have been able to read them. Mm-hmm. So what they might have done is taken take them to an apothecary to help them to read them. Or, you know, take them to the person in their life who can read. So often you have some older women who might um, um, be able to read. Or even um, some of these women also made cosmetics themselves and sold them um, to neighbours. Um, so this really, the idea that you should follow these beauty regimes was really diffused throughout society. It's much tougher, right, for poor women to follow them, like it always is. For sure. Um, <laughs> And in a way, you know, the way that beauty ideals are created deliberately kind of makes it more difficult for poorer women to follow them. Mm-hmm. So there's a real mm-hmm. emphasis on having paler skin. And if you are working, which all these women were, you know, working in the fields, which a lot of them were working in the marketplace, it's really difficult in Italy to keep a pale skin at this time. Um, similarly, you know, a lot of um, it was very important to be plump at this time, not 
they're very, they're very kind of specific. Not, you don't want to leave too fat, but you don't want to leave too thin. And in a period where there's a lot of um, disease, there's a lot of malnutrition, that's much harder for poor women than it is for richer women. But the basic, the basic beauty ideals are the same. Yeah, uh, one of your recipes is is for these uh these lovely treats to try to help you put on some weight. <laughs> I thought that those sounded really good. They they sound like some of those energy balls you can buy at like Whole Foods now. <laughs> they are so nice. <laughs> they're too nice. I mean, it's, it's not. That, I mean, you would you can imagine because you they're they're basically made of nuts and honey, mm-hmm. um, a different kind of nuts, and I, I think they're actually probably really quite nutritious. And like if you're feeling sick or anything, and nuts, are, everyone, you know, nuts are so good for you, really, even though they're they've been castigated for being too calorific, whatever. But um, they are nice, and you're meant to have them with warm milk, so comforting. Um, and so you can quite imagine that if you're feeling a bit sick and if you've lost some weight because you've been had some te- one of these terrible diseases mm-hmm. that, you know, the, uh, smallpox or something or um another kind of um disease that that kind of thing might be quite comforting but it's also meant to make you look nice and you know to plump you up nicely as well yeah well they sound delicious for sure <laughs> oh my goodness they are delicious yeah 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 so how common were these beauty manuals at the time and how were they consumed I know you mentioned women listening to them with friends like in the book um or or possibly trying to find somebody to to read mm. them for them or, or the you know getting together in a group to kind of mm. go through these together um was getting beauty advice as easy as like picking up a copy of Cosmo off the newsstand like was it for everybody well it's a really interesting question about how these books are used. When we think of reading, we think of, you know, buying a book from the bookstore, sitting alone in a corner, you know, having a lovely time with a cup of tea or something like that and reading a book and and, and it being a kind of individual thing. But in this period, actually, most books, not just this kind of book, but most books were read aloud anyway. So they're a much more social thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is obviously an area before the kind of entertainment we take for granted now, you know um so reading books aloud is very common so you didn't necessarily have to be literate you didn't necessarily have to be able to read to be able to have access to material that was in books and actually the more research that's done the more emphasis is put on this oral culture that's now been lost mm-hmm. um so you could get information from this book these books and increasingly and um, you get more and more and more of these books over the 16th century and into the 17th century and more and more recipes for all sorts of things not just cosmetics but all sorts of uh um you know household goods and um um you know tips and tricks for medicines and things like that um and there is evidence that that women were particularly interested in these books and they were often aimed specifically at women even though women's literacy was lower so it could be that um um even husbands were reading them to wives it's really difficult to know um but certainly there there were women female friendship groups that got together and had you know had their hair done and things like that you know so there's a lot of evidence that you know women who are often spending a lot of time together indoors um particularly upper class women who had the, these massive amounts of, of um, servants had a culture of kind of sharing beauty tips doing each other's hair for example um you know giving advice about oh you know i found these particular that you know there's letters that say oh you know i found this really great thing to give me shiny nails mm-hmm. and so they say oh <laughs> have these you know this this is a present I'm giving you or they send each other face waters to make the face look lovely and they share recipes so there's big uh kind of these collections of women who are sharing recipes at all levels of society I think 
Oh, I think that's wonderful. When you were talking about the women getting together, you know, like um, like having like a makeover party or like a girl's yeah. night or something, it just felt so familiar. You know, it just had to make me smile. I mean, I think we've all kind of done that at one point or another, you know, yeah. like growing yeah. up, you know, my friends would come over and my mom would do everybody's hair, you know, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's so fun, you know, like over yeah. time, you know, like things don't really change so much, you yeah. know. And I think it's sometimes when people talk about beauty and it is important to understand that it's a pressure and that there is sometimes there's a lot of, um, you know, social pressure on people to look a certain way and it can be felt really badly and it, it can be really bad for women. But mm-hmm. there's this whole other side of it that's about fun and about sociability and is about, particularly in this society, in the Renaissance society, which is really misogynistic, right? Really, women did not have many areas where they were expert. This is an area where women had real expertise and men hated it. <laughs> a lot of men. <laughs> Men were absolutely, oh God, they're talking about beauty and they should stop talking about beauty and like really castigated their expertise as something that wasn't worth knowing. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's just misogyny. <laughs> and even and now, still today, you know, it's still it's still misogyny. And I think people, I'm always very impressed with people who really know a lot about cosmetics and really know a lot about hair. And I think it's something that still now is undervalued um as something that's female and frivolous mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a shame because it's great and it yeah. makes people feel better right and you know going fun. to the hairdresser can make you feel so much better yeah absolutely <laughs> so it's like it's like it's a real it's a really great thing so I hope that um I know I've, I've been talking to other people who are working on contemporary ideas of beauty and there's been a few things recently a few books recently out um who are saying you know having still to assert the idea that it's not silly and it's not stupid to be interested in this kind of thing mm-hmm. um it's okay <laughs> to be interested in beauty yeah and, and of course it was uh it was something that women did for fun um or yeah. you know for for various reasons to to do better mm-hmm. at work or to you know like make a good marriage hopefully um yeah. but it was also something that women could do to make a living so yes. what was a maestra and how many women uh-huh. were employed in this way I'm very much looking forward to doing more work on this on these maestro because <laughs> there's not much known about them. So it seems there's there's some very interesting preliminary data which was in my book about Jewish immigrants in um, Italy um, being very important in selling beauty products, devising and creating new beauty products, and also helping. Um, women with kind of beauty tasks so so um the there was the Jews were expelled from um Spain in 1492 and a a big Jewish population came to Rome um a a lot of refugees came to Rome um and the Jewish women in Spain and particularly in southern Spain had often shared recipes with the Islamic women they were living alongside uh, Islamic women and they shared beauty recipes so there's some great work on this by um uh, Spanish historians and so then when they came to Italy they brought this knowledge with them and of course you know the level of knowledge amongst Islamic communities about um sci- what we'd now call science you know early Islamic science and, and medicine um was really sophisticated um compared to a lot of what was going on in Europe and so this knowledge came, you know, the knowledge of Mediterranean bathing culture, Islamic bathing culture was brought also to Italy. And so it's these women 
who seem to have started making a living and become becoming like small scale entrepreneurs, we'd call them nowadays, selling some of these products. And there's one, you know, it's really hard to get documentation about these women, and it'd be lovely to hear more. But there's one called Anna, who we know is a Jewish woman, who we know lived in Rome, who sold um these beauty products to Katarina Swartz there. And Hannah gave her a whole routine, gave her a whole skincare routine <laughs> uh, to work on. So so this is a project this is a project you know that would be great for some people to do a bit more research on so you catch glimpses of these women in criminal proceedings um sometimes in the literature they're often illiterate mm-hmm. so one of the challenges that i had in my book is finding out more about these women you know just tracking them down in all these different sources um and there's still more to be like everywhere like always in history you know there's still more to be done <laughs> more research to be done on this kind of thing but yeah my story yeah, basically like hairdressers or like beauticians today. Yeah. Oh, I just thought that was so cool, you know, and um, yeah. and and finding out that that women had had this way of making a living. And you mentioned as well that some of them were also apothecaries. Yeah, there were female apothecaries. There's quite a few female apothecaries actually. Um, there's a lot of apothec- um, ap- apothecaries as part of convents, mm-hmm. and so you, you get um, convents where you know you get a, a, a master apothecary who's a nun, and then she trains apothecaries uh, to do it as well and then you also get um women who were married originally perhaps to uh, an apothecary then take over the apothecary when their husband dies women tend to be much younger than their husband so that's not uncommon um and and then you get women who are just apothecaries in their own right so you get a lot of women in 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 healthcare loads and loads of different um, capacities but you actually do also get these women who are kind of successful and really knowledgeable um in making cosmetics making medicines as well that's so interesting and it's uh it's not necessarily what you'd expect so how did artists and writers influence the renaissance beauty standard like you know did a new t-shirt come out and someone say i have to have my hair to look like that (laughs) (laughs) i think it's just this it's just relentless they 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 popularize this idea of beauty ideals with this in actually titian is a great example so you might think of um if if you can bring it to mind or even even like botticelli's birth of venus which is one that mm-hmm. people often bring to mind you know this long beautiful kind of golden hair and this um hourglass hourglass shape maybe a bit more fleshy at the hips and at the then at the top you know the small breasts mm-hmm. um and um yeah kind of general fleshiness and and very they often you might not have notice it but you will do now i've said you know next time you go to an art gallery very fine kind of arched eyebrows rosebud lips all this kind of stuff and it's just on every single painting of a beautiful woman mm-hmm. right for about 300 years right right so there isn't much um elasticity in what what is beautiful Venus is almost always painted in this way and it's based on kind of classical precedence. And this gets really set around the um, the turn of the 16th century. So they just basically say, this is the way you have to look to be beautiful. Yeah. And they've influenced both men and women. So they might influence women who might think, oh, this is what I should look like. But they influence men because they say, men are thinking this is the kind of wife I should be looking at looking for mm-hmm. um and then this is double down you know this idea of, of this kind of um golden haired fleshy woman is also medically the best so you get these physicians 
saying, oh, this reflects the best balance of humors for women to be fertile and obedient. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> so if, <laughs> if you've got, if you've got like that, you know, not bright blonde hair, but if you've got this honey blonde hair, like an addition, these women are most likely to bear you male children and to do what you do, you do what they're told. Um, so there's this long, I know it's crazy. And there's this long association between, um, the way a woman looks and her character. Mm-hmm. So even in the 16th century, people were saying that women with platinum blonde hair would were stupid. That's incredible. So it's yeah. that old. It's that old. Oh so my the, goodness. the idea of the dumb blonde is not, I mean, it's ter- it's terrible and it's obviously clearly untrue, but it's but that's it goes right back to the humoral system, this idea of the humoral system. And women with dark hair were argumentative. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that <laughs> like for myself, but gosh, that's just amazing. I, I can't believe the idea of, of like a, like a so-called dumb blonde is 600 years old. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. Oh my goodness. And, and of course that they were able to dye their hair, you know, um, oh, yeah. to do it successfully and to, to look really good. Of course, you know, people like, uh, like Lucrezia Borgia was, it was very yeah. famously blonde and, you know, kind of beautiful. Yeah um it's it's just incredible to me it sounds like cosmetics and and hair care at the time was more advanced than the medicine yeah I think I mean it's it's yeah I mean the medicine's interesting because it's all based on this idea of the humors and the balancing of the body and some of that you know some of some of it it's some of the things they did were absolutely terrible a lot of bleeding and purging you know a lot Mm. of making people yeah not nice um but some of the, some of the other stuff that they talked about, like they, the way they talk about um, how to put on weight, is lovely. You get to walk around and smell beautiful scents, and then eat some of these lovely honey fat balls and things like that. So they knew they knew some stuff, but yeah, the cosmetics do tend to work. Hair dye, um, you know, some of it is a bit harsh. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't necessarily want to put on your hair now, mm-hmm. um, but certainly some of it. A lot of even the poisons that they use, even the poisonous substances that they use, things like mercury which obviously we wouldn't use now and um, they use mercury for skin whitening does actually whiten the skin mm-hmm. lead right. white does white does um, leave a you know does lighten the skin and actually there's been some experimentation done um um in a nuclear lab on in canada on lead white as this in skin care they've used pig skin to put it on and they found that it's a really effective foundation it's a light scattering foundation mm-hmm. so it actually makes your skin look really nice as well <laughs> don't don't use it obviously but yeah so so it's all these dangerous things which we kind of laugh at renaissance women for using Mm -hmm. were also quite effective wow and it's not necessarily what we'd expect it's so interesting and and speaking of of unexpected the one thing that surprised me the most was your chapter on plastic surgery i (laughs) in a million years would have thought that renaissance italy had nose jobs and labioplasty oh yeah it was quite grim procedures and how were they carried out Okay, so uh, I'll start with the nose jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the, so nose surgery, surgery to reconstruct noses started probably in the 15th century. And there were some doctors in Sicily who worked out how to take a graft of skin from the back of the arm and fix it onto and, and kind of create a nose out of it. Um, and so by this about 100 years later um in the mid 16th century um it was written down for the first time um by this guy called um Gaspar Italia Cozzi and there's an 
really startling image of this um, of a man having his um, arm raised so the back of his arm so the the um, skin from the back of his arm can be fixed onto his face sewn onto his face to form a nose and they actually did do this it was very very painful and it seems to have worked in in some cases um and and it was for people who had um sometimes for people who had uh, their noses eroded by syphilis mm -hmm. um but also people who had their noses cut off for a sh as shaming rituals it's very common to cut off the noses as a as a means of shaming people particularly women so that's why the noses as for the as for the labiaplasty <laughs> um, well there's evidence that women that midwives would cut off the labia if they felt it the if it if, if they felt it was too big the labia minora to make it look neater um and this was something that there's evidence for in the medical manuals um and there's um the, you know and and particularly actually for there's a particular word that they use for excessive bleeding where this operation goes wrong oh. um i know it's really it's really awful yeah um, but even you know this idea that that this kind of really drastic measures that you might take to beautify a part of the body this, this isn't this isn't new mm -hmm. or that these pressures that people have is new uh, to, to change things it, it's just it's just not it's not new um, people were worried that if women had, you know, what they deemed to be an enlarged labia or clitoris, they were worried that they'd become lesbians. Um, so this is a source of this association for, um, of, of, of women kind of like being not very feminine if this happened to them, you know, and being more highly sexualized and being less passive. Um, so a lot of this surgery is just carried out with the assumption that it will make women more attractive and also prevent them being too sexualized um yeah so it's quite a grim grim story yeah. really and just unimaginable i just the, the yeah you doesn't bear thinking about the amount of the oh, the levels of kind of cleanliness no anesthetic um oh, it's excruciating i can't even imagine yeah. yeah yeah oh my goodness but but just that anybody would even think of that you know, of course, like, you know, people, people will do that now, but people kind of blame like porn culture for that, but it's mm. not that new. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I wouldn't want to say, oh, this is not related to porn culture because everyone is affected by what they see. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but people were seeing a lot of female nudes in the Renaissance. Right. Right. So it's, it's, you know, the same reason why, you know, there's this, it seems to be there's this shift towards pubic hair removal particularly in southern Europe, you know, in Italy, in France, there's lots of recipes for that say, you know, this is how you remove your pubic hair um, in the 16th century. And that's maybe related to the birth of the nude in paintings and print. So, of course, you know, uh, you know, porn expands your imagination. These are parts of the body you don't see on a regular basis, right? So it's like, you know, particularly, and then in the Renaissance, it was even more rarer to see, to see this part of a female body because women tended to, you know, be praised for keeping this stuff secret um so so it was open to the imagination um and what people expect what people think is normal is affected by what they see most regularly and if you're watching a lot of porn <laughs> you know, <laughs> who knows what you think is normal <laughs> but yeah 
Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. So it's, it's way more similar than you'd think. That's just incredible to me. My goodness. Yeah. So how could beauty practices be subversive? You start to get this. Well, there's a lot of ways, actually, because a lot of men, a lot of particularly in the church, particularly moralist men, really, really rail against women's beauty practices. And certainly, you know, right from the beginning of the period that I was looking at from the 15th century, you start to get people, men getting angry about women spending too much time, um, you know, dyeing their hair, um, putting on makeup. And they think that women trick them into marriage by being so good at makeup that they basically, you know, look completely different than what they really are. So, and that, and it's true that women were subversive. So, for example, if you think women are going to be more passive and a better, you know, you know, a, a better wife and more fertile if they've got blonde hair, so make your hair blonder. Mm-hmm. Just what women did all the time, and they used to sit up on the um, rooftops in Venice with, you know, with um, all sorts of stuff on their hair, um, kind of to bleach it, and they used to get blonder hair. And even in some of the paintings, you can see dark roots on some of these um, um, women, by Titian and others. Um, so so that's in itself subversive, right? This this thing that women can do to make themselves look better so men can't see if they have natural beauty or not, mm-hmm. right? Because the whole point of Renaissance makeup is not to make yourself look made up, it's to look naturally beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so that's also really similar to today. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of correspondences. But when you get into the 17th century, there's women who you just start to write about beauty culture and say, I don't care what men think. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Moderata Fonte, um, who is my best, you know, if you had a dream dinner party, she'd be somebody I'd definitely like. She's amazing. So she wrote a treatise um, on the worth of women um, in 1592, just, and then she died in childbirth and it was, it was um, printed posthumously in 1600. Um, and she has a, her, characters in this in this treatise talk to each other about many many things but one of the things they talk about is beauty culture and they say oh you know one of the characters says oh but if men knew that we were talking about beauty they'd just laugh at us because that's they that's what they think that's all they think that we talk about and and she had her main you know her main character said well who cares what men think men should just stop thinking about this kind of thing it doesn't matter what do they care what does it matter to them if we do this or that with our hair you know um, and so that's really quite an important thing uh, to say. And you get, you know, other women, um, say some artists in the 17th century who who ha- present themselves, have dark curly hair, you know, have this say, you know, yeah, I've got a kind of melan- what they think of as a melancholic temperament or I'm a difficult kind of person. And, you know, but I'm interested in painting <laughs> you know people like Giovanna Gazzoni or Artemisia Gentileschi mm-hmm. and paint themselves with the kind of dark hair of a mel- someone with a, a a melancholic temperament full of imagination who might not be the best passive wife and mm-hmm. um, so you get this shift and and uh, this interest in it and women all, also argue we have an, our rights you need to allow us to wear jewelry you need to allow us to beautify ourselves because that's all you're giving us so you get you get absolutely those women as well arguing for the importance of beauty because they don't have anything else. They can't, you know, they don't have equality to men. Um, and so it becomes a beauty becomes kind of like a feminist issue. 
um, in the 16th and 17th centuries for these women as well. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Goodness, I had to mention uh, Fonte's book title because it I thought it was so funny. So, um, so Moderata Fonte's book was The Worth of Women, wherein is clearly revealed their nobility and their superiority to men. That's quite subversive yeah. in itself, isn't it? Yeah. And there's and she's not the I mean, Moderata Fonte is is a wonderful and you know exceptional in, in some ways, but this comes against against the background of women, this big experiment with educating women that starts in the early 16th century and results in this massive explosion of women's writing um, in, in Italy, France, and England, and other places in, in Europe. And because there's such a good print, uh, important printing press in Italy, you get loads of poems and, and treatises and things published by women in this period. And a lot of them do talk about their attitudes to beauty. Um, so it's much less... I know from talking to students that people think that women were just oppressed at this time, <laughs> you know, and they just and they just got on with it and they didn't mind about it. But that you get these amazing, you know, amazing writings, amazing paintings, all this amazing stuff about women that thinks about what it is to be a woman um, in this in this period where, you know, generally women are thought pretty badly of by 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 the male, you know, the men who absolutely dominate culture. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And then, of course, there's some gender nonconformity, too. So who was Catalina de Oroso? Well, there's um, I should say there's there's been some really great um, work on her recently. And there's a book by Sherry Velasco, which I thoroughly recommend on um, Oroso. And she and sometimes he <laughs> um, is uh, a was born in Spain um, and was born female and um, sent to a convent and then escaped from the convent and lived as a man and became a soldier and was renowned for all sorts of kind of um, violent deeds and all this kind of stuff and went to um, uh, the new world and, uh, you know, with this, with Spanish troops and fought for Spain and was, you know, really well thought of as a soldier. And then they realised that, um, that she had a female body um we know that she for example she took uh, medicine to reduce her breasts um and it's really the pronouns is really difficult but i'm, I'm struck i'm going between he and she um and um sherry velasco uses she because there's no it's such a difficult different historical period but yeah there's certainly i mean that's one woman who's really well documented um and there's other women that we know dressed up in male clothing it's really difficult. You've got to be careful before you just like, uh, you know, you, you know, you think about, um, uh, you know, in, in a world where sexuality and gender is thought about very different, differently, you've got to acknowledge that. But there is this real interest in gender switching in Renaissance culture and some really interesting work done on this area at the moment. But yeah, so I think for women at that point, dressing up, taking on men's um, clothing and men's behavior was liberating 
mm-hmm. as well. It meant they could do a lot of more things. But then there's occasion. There's, there's sometimes you find in the, the archives women like a, a Rousel, who was what we'd now call seems clearly to be now what we would now call trans, right? Yeah. Um. So so which is really which is a really fascinating bit of history. And there's more more people work on it. The more people that they're finding who would fit into this category. Gosh, that is so interesting to me. And and of course, you mentioned that that it appears in fiction too. Uh, female knights sometimes appear in fiction, like in uh, Floridoro, right? Um, yeah. So does, does it tell us anything else about gender nonconformity in the Renaissance and, and to what extent it was accepted or, or fantasized about, I suppose? I'm also thinking about like the Feminelli of Naples. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that this is a really exciting area for research. I think the more that is found, and it's the same, I remember when I started out right back in the 90s, it was the same with finding out about um, um, gay history, you know, you know, sexuality in all sorts of um, areas and, you know, uncovering the lives of gay people in the past and how rich a historical source it was and how important it is to have a history of of this to, to show you know because this, this idea oh it's just a phase you know well actually you know this kind of stuff has been going on for a very very long time mm-hmm. um there's been some wonderful work by Leah Devon on this as well um and some by um other historians of gender who looked also at a genital surgery um so what I mean one of the issues with talking about renaissance women because i knew even the book is called how to be a renaissance woman was saying you know the idea of what a woman is is his is related to much wider source much wider idea of history Mm -hmm. and how gender and the body relate is actually quite complicated Mm -hmm. so if you look at gender as this kind of social idea of of um of masculinity or femininity um and sex, you could say, was more linked into the body, but neither of those categories are completely immutable. Um, it's actually quite a complicated relationship between the two. Um, and if you start to say that women are just being a woman is just to do with the body that you have, you're going down a very, very difficult path. <laughs> um, and the Renaissance evidence shows that actually, because then it says, "Oh, you're limited to what you can do, mm-hmm. or, or, or how you can feel." So it's it's you know. The intersections of these things are complicated, but I think it's not in anyone's uh, interest to say that masculinity or femininity are just related to say what mm-hmm. genitalia you might have. Um, <laughs> that's my that's my feeling, which is you yeah. know, uh, um, so so um, you know because you you see from the evidence of history that this means that people get limited, uh, you know, are given limited chances in life, and that's not what we want. Yes. Oh, I agree completely. And of course, a lot of these beauty manuals um, did have some sort of sexual health information in them. Oh, yeah. A lot of them included tips on like childbirth, menstruation, and even Mm -hmm. birth control. So I've come across a few of these in my contraception research. I got my copy from Tula, you know. So uh, what can beauty manuals tell us about gynecological issues at the time? Like what kinds of uh, contraceptives and abortifacients were they using? Well, it's really interesting this because one of the first beauty manual, you know, that I start, I talk about in my first chapter, you know, you get all these these recipes for cosmetics and it's advertised as a cosmetic manual. And then you get these recipes for contraceptives and for um, abortifacients, which is, you know, herbs and, um, and things like that. So it's obvious that these secrets that are being shared amongst women include that side of sexual health. And it's this kind of, you know, 
and they also sometimes include things like love and potions and things like that and and you know slightly magicy things um so it's like all these areas are areas that women have to particularly deal with i mean there's been a great um and I'm just saying, oh, another book. There's another book. There's um, there's there been a book on abortion in uh, Renaissance Italy um, by a historian called John Christopoulos that came out last year. And um, he talks a lot about how some of these women, a lot of the evidence that you get in criminal trials is from um, men who forced women to have abortions. These are men who were having affairs often and forced their women to have abortions. But you wonder how much was going on behind closed doors that we don't have any evidence for mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. yeah gosh that is so interesting but of course that that was kind of a, a part and parcel with the, the makeup information these are these are all kind yeah. of filed under like secrets of women yeah. the secrets of women yeah. and you also you wonder if it's kind of hidden mm-hmm. amongst this information if it's you know there so that women know it's there but it's in a book that maybe men wouldn't particularly be very interested in reading um so that's a possibility as well and you know if women you know these women who are making makeup and you know uh, uh, or face washes or face waters and stuff they're the same women who apply who are also making you know contraceptives and um, stuff for abortions as well um, because they are knowledgeable about Mm -hmm. herbs and about all this kind of uh, you know herbs and minerals and things that can that can affect the body and um, so it's part and parcel of the same thing gosh that's so interesting isn't it and I will definitely look for that book that sounds wonderful yeah yeah so, it's really interesting yeah so you talk about so many interesting people in this book but one who really stood out to me who was Veronica Franco oh <laughs> Veronica Franco and um, was this incredibly accomplished and interesting and eloquent courtesan who lived in Venice um, in the later 16th century. And she was born um, into relative poverty, it seems. Her mum, mother was um, a courtesan or a sex worker of, you know, a less kind of elevated sex worker. And, um, but Veronica Franco grew up and she was patronized by several um, kind of quite well-known literary men. And she started to write and she wrote extraordinary poems, um, which which were published and some letters, which were also published during her lifetime. Um, And she wrote about, you know, things like how women, she wrote very, very movingly about women, women's kind of subordination to men. Mm -hmm. Um, She was constantly under attack by other poets. And she wrote very um, movingly about the problems of being a courtesan as well. You know, there's a wonderful letter where she talks about always having to, um, you know, act like as someone else wants you to act. And the kind of pressures that 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 takes, you know, the toll that that takes after a while when you've you spent a life, you know, she says, speaking with another voice um, and and. The problem with Veronica Franco and the sad thing about Veronica Franco is that she then, after her main patron died, she just she just dwindles away. And we don't know anything about her apart from the fact that she died very young, uh, you know, in her mid 40s or something like that. So she's a wonderful um, and fascinating woman um, who has quite a tragic life. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But, um, I love the excerpts that you had. And, and, um, I thought that was such a great story and so interesting. And 
you know, yeah. people don't necessarily think of this, this time period of women being writers, you know, um, but ah. it happened. So yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's so yeah, interesting. Lots of wonderful writers. And, and then there's other people like Isabella, and, uh, Isabella Andreini. He was a playwright mm-hmm. and an actor. I mean, people often think there's not any women actors in this period because in England, there isn't so many women actors. There is some. But in Italy, there's really famous women actors. Um, and there's several of them. Um, Isabella Andreini is probably the most famous. And she writes some very celebrated um, plays. And then you get artists like Sofonisba Anguissola, who who was really great and refused to get married until she was in her early 40s and then gets remarried to an un, to a person who everyone thinks is unsuitable. He's a, he's a sea captain who is like 20 years younger than her and lives this wonderful and happy life um, painting um, and is quite really famous during her lifetime. She has an extraordinary life and she, to make, to make us happy, she dies when she's in, in her early 90s. So yeah. we can be we can be we can be happy about that. And she has a she has like a very exciting kind of um and fulfilled life. Um extraordinary for a woman of that time. Yeah. And she got to live happily ever after. I think yes. that's wonderful. <laughs> but of course not everybody did. So you know, mm-hmm. makeup could be a way to get ahead, it could be entertainment, it could be a way to make a living, but it could also be a weapon. So yep. what was aqua tofana? Okay. <laughs> So aquatofana is a poison. It was a poison that was devised um, by a woman um, called uh, in, in Sicily um, in the early 17th century. And then it looks like it kind of went to Naples, but it was all found out and it was all exposed in Rome in the 1660s when um, through this kind of extraordinary sting operation, the authorities in Rome found that there was a ring of women who had been passing around a poison to kill, basically mainly to kill husbands. And they passed it around pretending it was um, water for the face or some other cosmetic. And they slowly poisoned their husband and they reckon that hundreds of husbands killed. Oh um, my God. Yeah, I mean, really, really um, the the estimates change. Um, but they thought that possibly hundreds of uh, men were killed in the wake of the plague. So mm. it's slightly complicated because there was a plague in Rome at this time in the 1660s. And so so it was hard because, you know, forensic medicine wasn't um, very sophisticated. It was hard to tell how people died. But the idea that this medicine killed people over, over a period of days. So you'd put it in your husband's food or whoever you wanted to kill. And then they'd, you know, over a period of days, they'd get iller and iller. The physician would come and say, well, you know, they're ill and then they'd eventually die. Um, and it was just, it was, and eventually they were only found out because somebody confessed to a priest and wow. they persuaded them to go to the authorities and to kind of become a witness for the prosecution effectively. Um, and you think, oh, this is terrible. All these women killing their husbands. Then you find out what their husbands are like. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's more understandable. Because these women, it, there's this extraordinary series of um, uh, accounts uh, in their trials and these women talk about their husbands and they their husbands are t- terrible they are beaten they're not just beaten by their husbands they're beaten by their brothers and they're beaten by their fathers you know there's these women have broken bones these women are raped by their husbands repeatedly they are um their husbands don't give them any money they're not allowed to work themselves they're in complete poverty um and so so you understand how tempting this way out of these marriages must have been 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really interesting case because it's one of the few, you know, you really get an insight again from most cases into how these women were sharing, um, were sharing I- ideas, were sharing just problems about their life with each other, and were also sharing cosmetics. And that's why they were able to hide this, this poison because they were sharing the stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goodness. No, in those situations when there's when there's no other recourse, there's no other way to get out. There's no no yeah. fault divorce yet. You know, I mean, yeah. you can understand why why it felt like that was the only way. And it's such yeah. a tragedy. But it's something that I think about, like, um. so here in the States, there are certain politicians who are talking about, like, ending no fault divorce. And people keep trying to say to them, like, this is a really bad idea, because this mm-hmm. is going to cut back on people being able to leave situations of, of domestic violence. And, mm-hmm. and you know what happened before there was no fault divorce? Well, things like Aquatofana happened, and a lot more people yeah. were, were killing their abusive husbands. And, yeah. uh, and of course, we want to avoid that. Um, yeah. But it's, it's just so interesting that, that, of course, this is, this is something that, that happened. And, and it was uh, something that these, these networks of women were, were able to, to kind of organize, to kind of pull yeah. each other out of it, um, even yeah. though it's, it's horrible to contemplate. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it just shows you kind of how resourceful people were. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm coming from a European um, standpoint, you know, I mean, I'm in Scotland and so uh, we have no fault divorce in Scotland (laughs) and uh, we have access to abortion in Scotland and um, all these things that are happening in the States, you know, from a historical point of view, when you see the real result of things that, you know, women, you know, in the 16th century were killed by their husbands. And they killed their husbands, but they worked because they could not get out of these marriages. They died because they couldn't have access to abortion um, because they were desperate. All these things are terrible. And it's frightening to see what's happening across the other side of the Atlantic from 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 our, our viewpoint. And I, I mean, I'm not saying that the UK has been the bastion of you know, no. <laughs> recently, uh, but, you know, um, socially, people are still quite, um, you know, I, I can't imagine a setting where in Scotland particularly um, any of these things will be up for debate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, just a different kind of um, setting. But I do feel strongly that if you look at history, you can see what history is telling you about access to these to these basic human rights mm-hmm. um, and that women are the ones who come out badly time after time after time because women have the most to fear um, from not being able to exit relationships. Um it's I, I mean I think you should make divorce as easy as, as you can to be honest I don't see why you should force people to stay in a marriage um but you know um in in historical terms yeah you're quite you're quite right yeah it's not good for men or women oh my goodness no I agree completely I think this is uh one of many reasons why history is so important you know we, we should be able to learn from this and and see Absolutely. what happens when these things are taken away oh yeah. my goodness Mm-hmm. So a lot of people talk about beauty culture, like it's a new thing, like nobody ever cared about how they looked before Instagram <laughs> and the Kardashians, right? But this comes up again and again throughout history, this, this idea oh. that it's like a moral failing. So mm-hmm. was Renaissance beauty culture oppressive or empowering? Maybe both? both? <laughs> I mean, both. I do kind of pose this question at the end. Go, right. I think more empowering than, than oppressive because in this time the 16th century the really conservative voices were against beauty culture mm-hmm. so you do get some women who are fem- you know early feminist voices like Laura Chirita who is a writer in the 15th century 
in Bologna. So she's really early. And she says, why are these women caring about their, the way they look? They're just not, they should be reading books all the time. Um, and so, which, and obviously you should be reading books all the time, but you can also care about the way you look. Um, but most of the women at this time were fighting this really, this patriarchal oppression, which um, said you should just be very grateful for the looks that God gave you and you shouldn't experiment with hair and makeup and things like that. And you shouldn't be tricking men by looking, uh, by caring, you know, by using cosmetics. So I think it was more empowering. I think that balance is there. I mean, it, it changes. All these things are very historically and socially specific. Um, and it, and it, and it does change a lot. Um, but yeah, I think more empowering in, in the 16th century anyway. Certainly. Yeah. So what impact did Renaissance beauty culture have on the years to come? And are we still seeing its influence now? Yeah. I mean, I think like, like a lot of beauty culture, I mean, we talked about em empowering as well. I suppose I should dial that back a little bit. It depends on whether you're either you're ever going to fit in these beauty ideals <laughs> because the renaissance saw the beginnings of colonialism it saw the beginnings of slavery um on a massive scale i mean slavery existed right obviously from the from the um classical times mm -hmm. and it was still existed right through the middle ages in much of europe but this kind of massive amount of sub-saharan african slavery started in the 15th century um in italy and then just kind of got much much bigger through the 16th and 17th and so the idea of what you find beautiful and what you don't find beautiful this emphasis on white um, on whiteness um as a beauty ideal you know that perhaps less empowering and that carries on that carries on um and becomes more and more medicalized mm. um as you as you get to kind of theories of race um being developed through the 18th and 19th centuries so it's not quite there in the period that i'm looking at but that's something that that happens um you get this kind of glorious um, makeup um, um, cosmetics kind of interesting cosmetics in the 17th century and people start wearing beauty patches and things, which I didn't have, which was a little bit later. I really want to look at that. Yeah. Is, you know, I really want to look at the when you start to wear face patches and things like that. Wow, wonderful. And you start to get these crazy wigs and, and things like that. Um, but even in the period that I was looking at beauty culture changes, you know, so you get different fashions, particularly for hair, hair care, different fashions um, in different parts of Europe. Um, there is a sad thing, really, in that, um, you know, you get less interest in educating women um, as you get into the 17th century. So you maybe, you know, there's not so much uh, women's writing. There's still women's writing, but maybe not so much in Italy anyway, as you get into the 17th century, uh, the late 17th century. Um, but yeah, I suppose, I suppose, as well, you know, this legacy, we were talking about, you know, the uh, blonde hair, pale skin, uh, you know, peaches and cream skin is still around, right? Mm -hmm. It's an archetype of beauty that kind of still infuses our culture. Um, and with this advent of colonialism and, and starts to like go beyond Europe and wow. go well beyond Europe to the rest of the world. Um, and that work on that and how that how these things go together has only really just been started um and it'd be really great to you know to to have a project that looks more closely at that and the impact of of these standards of beauty um in you know colonial 
um, uh, South and Central America, and also in um, in early early America as well. Absolutely fascinating. I'd definitely be interested in reading about that. Yeah, so, me too. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for you? Uh, and where can we find more about you and your work? Well, um, I um, I I have a research blog. It's it's called uh, Jill Burt's blog. Um, and so you can look at look at a website there. And I work at the University of Edinburgh, so I have there's lots of links to that um, too. I have just finished um, a research project called Renaissance Goo, where I made some uh, Renaissance makeup with a, a a soft matter physicist, and we found out a lot about Renaissance makeup and a lot about these women, which is great. And we're about to upload some um, videos showing how to make these recipes, um, so which will be good to add to the book if you if you're interested in making the recipes in the book. So we're going to upload some videos on our website if you just Google Renaissance Goo. I think we're the only the only, only hit that you'll get Renaissance Goo. It's G O O O. And my next book is going to be about um, a kind of how to Renaissance. So back to the recipes, it's going to be about looking at the Renaissance as an era of ingenuity and creativity. And it's going to have a lot of how to um, descriptions of how they made things, how they made all sorts of things in the Renaissance and, and tell people to get, get people making things is what the next book is going to be about. Oh, wonderful. Well, I can't wait. Oh my goodness. Jill, thank you so much for, for stopping by today. I've, I've so appreciated this. It's been wonderful. So nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Professor Jill Burke for being our guest today. Her new book is How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity, and it's out now. You can find Jill at renresearch.wordpress.com. I'd also like to thank our wonderful patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Kirsten Lawrence, Scott Lohman, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, and Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History, or check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.